Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. My name is Ron Bentley. And this is John Harmon. And in this session, we take up a study of the 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. So this is 1 Corinthians 15. And in that chapter, Paul addresses specifically questions about the doctrine of resurrection. You know, Ron, when I was serving as a pastor in a church, had some opportunities to talk pretty regularly with some of our younger folks, uh, middle school and high school students, about some important decisions as they came upon baptism and joining the church and some some of those important decisions that they were making for themselves. And I, we used to have some conversations about the core of the Christian faith and what it was that they understood Christian belief to be about. And we'd talk about the cross and the resurrection, I would often ask them, why Why is the death and resurrection of Jesus so important to our faith? And I found that they were fairly good uh, about articulating the meaning of the cross, why okay. it was important that Jesus died for us, uh, reconciled us to God, the, the meaning behind the death of Jesus, but found they had pretty routinely some more difficulty in putting into words why resurrection is so important to our faith. And that's the road we're going to go down in this episode, because this is a question that we should all grapple with as Christians at at every point in our faith and not lose a hold of. And Paul's going to help us with that here in 1 Corinthians 15. We Christians like to rattle off the names of the books of the Bible, and, and one of those is Paul's letter to the folks in Corinth, so so we call that Corinthians, and this first letter is 1 Corinthians, but we sometimes forget this was a letter to a group of people in a specific place. The city was Corinth, Greece. It had an ancient history. It was an important city in Greece, but it had been completely destroyed and refounded as a Roman colony. It was actually in a strategic position. If you were coming from the Eastern Roman Empire by boat, say Ephesus or Thessalonica, and you were headed to Rome and, and you're doing it by boat, it was quite possible you would pull up to the narrow strip of land that Corinth was on that tied together mainland Greece with the Peloponnesian Peninsula. You would unload the boat and literally pull the boat up on skids along with the cargo. It would go about six or seven miles across this narrow strip of land, drop in the water on the other side and head off to Italy. And this was less risky for the boat, the cargo, and the crews to do it this way. And so it was a well-established procedure. There was a, there was essentially a, a, a road with skids for doing precisely this, but it also made Corinth a port city. So it was very cosmopolitan and it had a steady flow of people through it. So that's not, that's why we're not surprised to find out that as Paul's visiting Greece and he goes to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, works his way down to Athens, he ends up in Corinth. Yes, it's really important for us to keep in mind that that Paul was the one who planted the church in Corinth. Yeah. He, he was there. He was integral to the founding of that community. And and we read about this in Acts chapter 18, Luke's account of Paul in Corinth. Right. In fact, it was in Corinth that the Jewish reception of Paul and his message met so much opposition and abuse that 
he announced his resolve to focus his ministry on the Gentiles. Uh, <laughs> this is it. I'm done with you guys. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we see some sharp divisions coming between Paul and the synagogue that really surface, as Luke tells the story of, of Paul in Corinth. He, he traveled, as you said, to, to Corinth from Athens and stayed there a year and a half during what we call the, the second missionary journey of Paul. Then he moved on next to Ephesus, where where he had an even longer stay. So Paul was there in Corinth. He knew this church well. And after he left, they continued to check in with him, didn't they? Yes, they did. In fact, they sent him a list of questions at some point in his subsequent travels. And best we can tell, this first letter back to Corinth is Paul's answer to those questions. And it's worth pointing out that we have several of Paul's letters in the New Testament. We start with Romans, which is where Paul was writing to the church in Rome, which was a church he hadn't visited yet. And some consider Romans Paul's big uh, theological treatise, whereas Corinth is, is... Paul's practical advice to a church. That's an oversimplification, but it certainly gives you a sense of the difference and and theme between the two books, although there's clearly practical advice in Romans, and there's plenty of theology, some of which we're going to look at here in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians specifically. But given that context, Paul is answering questions, and in the list of questions he got from the church in Corinth, it becomes really clear that there are problems. In Mm. fact, Paul spends the first four chapters of the book, essentially, or this letter, essentially answering questions about divisions within the church and trying to enjoin the church to be be one, to, to find some sort of unity there. But the problems were bigger than that because he moves on into chapters five through seven of Corinthians, where he's now dealing with questions about marriage, about appropriate sexual behavior, and some outright sexual misbehavior. The the big story seems to have been that a guy in the church was sleeping with his father's second wife, and, and Paul's saying, this isn't right. So he's addressing those kinds of questions as well. That conversation transitions into a conversation about dietary practices and eating food sacrificed to idols. And here we begin to see some other of Paul's themes where he he begins to explain, yes, you're exactly right. I can eat anything I want. But if my exercise of that freedom damages someone else's relationship with God, that's hardly doing what I should do as a Christian. That's hardly um. expressing love, which brings us to chapters 11 through 14, which is the point where Paul deals with worship. And again, he seems to think that there's some real problems in the Corinthian church. He starts chapter 11 with his account of the Last Supper. It's important to keep in mind that this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians was almost certainly written before the Gospels. So in a way, this is our first recording of a first written, first extant written account of the events at the Last Supper. And Paul lays these out. And it's in the middle of all of this that we actually get that great love chapter where Paul culminates saying, uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Oh, yeah, the, the famous 
1 Corinthians 13. No one, everybody wants red at their wedding. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we hear this all the time. So so you're saying that really the the native context for this grand chapter about love is really really worship and the relationships of believers in, in worship. It absolutely is. In fact, there's some things in that chapter that make no sense unless you put it into the context that Paul was talking about. The Corinthian church had some particular practices that may seem a little unusual to at least to those of us that are Protestants in mainline denominations. They would get together and as a group, certain people would prophesy. Certain people would speak in unknown languages, speaking in tongues. Paul Mm. has been dealing with that. In chapter 12, he's going to go on to continue talking about it in chapter 14. And he starts out chapter 13, the the love chapter, saying, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have not love, then I am nothing. And that's the context. That's the context coming into chapter 13. It's the context going out of chapter 13 into chapter 14. Paul's point here is the way I understand what we do in worship is it needs to be done in love. And if we're not building up others in love, then we're not doing what we need to do. So that is absolutely the context of that chapter 13. But all of this, all of these problems that Paul's dealt with, divisions in the church, questions about appropriate sexual behavior, questions about dietary uh, practices, questions about worship, they're all building up to what Paul's going to say in chapter 15. There are only 16 chapters in the letter. The last chapter is about uh, essentially individual addresses, addresses to individuals in the church. So chapter 15 is the last substantive chapter of the book. And it's as though Paul is building up to this for a purpose. He's going to explain something that should have been motivating the Corinthians' understanding of all those other questions they had before. So as we launch into the actual text of 1 Corinthians 15, if it's possible, if it's safe and feasible for you to have the actual text of 1 Corinthians 15 available and handy and in front of you, uh, it will certainly be helpful. If not, you'll still be able to follow along just fine. But we're going to dive into the text and begin in this episode with the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verses 1 and 2. So, Ron, as this chapter gets going, Paul is really queuing up to talk about some things that are really fundamentally important to the Christian faith. And he kind of, he kind of brings all of this to uh, the surface to review with them as he points at the things that are most important about the gospel. He does, and he makes that clear with the way he opens the first sentence of this chapter. Uh, depending on what translation you're reading it in, it'll it'll read something like, I would remind you. It's as if Paul is sitting there, as I understand it, Paul's sitting there saying, I, I want to point out hmm. something that you should have known from the beginning. And in fact, he's explicit about that. He goes on to say, I want to point out, what I told you. It's what I told you when I was there. He uses that term good news in Greek, the euangelion or evangelion, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, and, and he actually is redundant with that word. He essentially says the spectacular announcement that I spectacularly announced to you. <laughs> that's what I want right. to remind you about. But 
he also talks about why it's important because what mm-hmm. follows immediately is to say this is the good news through which you are being saved. And there's just multiple layers to what that means that we've talked about before. It has immediate relevance to the way Corinthian, the Corinthians conduct their lives at that time, but it also has forward-looking relevance as well. So this is not new information for the Corinthians. Uh, In fact, uh, they've heard this before. Uh, Paul brings it up, points to it, and reminds them that this is, in fact, the the foundation of their faith, right? Yeah, Paul is reminding them of what he's told them. He's reminding them of how important it was. It has to do with their salvation. And as I said, it's, it's got a present component to it, but it also has a future component. In fact, when I was talking about the context of the book, one of the things I didn't say is that Paul has what you might call an eschatological perspective here, this perspective about the end of this age or this time or whatever you want to call it that runs through everything that he's been talking about. It was there in chapter 13 and the love chapter. Paul talks about the fact that uh, now we only know in part and then goes on a little bit later to say, then we shall see face to face. So it's what is that then? That's that's the end that Paul's looking forward to. And it's at other places in the book too. When he was talking about the visions in the church, he talked about withholding judgment until the Lord comes. And And in the middle of talking about appropriate sexual behavior, he talks about the present form of this world passing away. So whatever Paul's talking about here in terms of salvation has both this present component as well as a future component. And we start to see hints of that because Paul says uh, it, it is this message through which you're being saved if you hold fast And then he follows it by one other sort of just twist of the knife here, unless you have believed in vain. Mm. So Paul is opening the possibility that maybe the message doesn't have the power that he suggests that it does have. And it's as if he has to do that because he's about to address some objections and some opponents in the church, if you will, who have tried to suggest it doesn't have that power. Well, there's some people apparently in Corinth who are wanting to make some fundamental changes to the basic gospel message that Paul is proclaiming here. And and Paul is essentially responding, that's not okay. Is, Is that fair? That's exactly what's going on here. So in the next section of this chapter, We get to verses 3 through 7, where we really get a little bit of of a more specific look into what Paul means when he uses the word gospel that saves, or the word to which we hold firmly. And essentially, the the gospel is a story. It is a story. The the gospel is a story of what God has done, a story that culminates in the death-resurrection of Jesus Christ. So th- that's the essential story that's being told, the basic story, and uh, the the death for our sins, uh, Christ, the fact that he was buried and resurrected, we see that in these next couple of verses. Uh, Paul is really pointing us back to the basic narrative that comprises the gospel story. Is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, he's he started off saying, there's a story I told you. Now, here's the story. And, and as Paul says it right here, there are three pieces. 
Jesus Christ died for our sins. And, and that's sort of a, a pen that if anything else, you can think, ah, yes, everything Paul said back there in Romans about the importance of Jesus' death. And that's not to say Romans doesn't always have, doesn't also have a lot to say about resurrection. It does. But nonetheless, uh, that discussion of the importance of the death of Jesus Christ, that's, that's clearly here. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, which I take to mean he was really dead. <laughs> they, mm. they went so far as to put Jesus' body in a tomb, and he rose again. So those are the three components. He died, he was buried, he rose again. That's the basic message you were told. But, John, I can't miss the fact that, they, that he says Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And at that right. point, he's speaking your language, is he not? Yes, yeah, he is he is putting this story into the context of its essential background, which is the Old Testament story, the the broader story of God's work of salvation in the world. Uh, and the, what does the, that bring to your mind when Paul says that, especially this he died for our sins according to scripture? Yeah, yeah, well, for one thing, I think of Isaiah 53. I think okay. of the the picture of Messiah dying for the sins of others. Oh, okay. uh, that def- definitely something that's in the background there. Also, simply the the general messianic expectation of the Old Testament. We've talked about that right. elsewhere in the podcast that Jesus was coming to fulfill something that was connected to God's rescue of of people. All right. And 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 that that broader background to the story is really in Paul's mind is the Old Testament story. Exactly. And 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 Paul makes that connection very explicitly here. In fact, he does it twice, yep. connecting the gospel story with the bigger story that that was begun in the book of Genesis. It's all one story here as far as Paul's it's all concerned. One story. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Now he wraps it up by listing the people who observed these events. Paul lists the original disciples. Paul lists people who saw Jesus after his death, a group of 500. He even says some of them are still alive, although others have fallen asleep, meaning that they have died. Uh, So Paul gives a list of eyewitnesses to this, and this is crucial in my mind, because there is no way around the fact Paul is trying to be perfectly clear. This ain't no mythology. This is not an attempt to create some kind of mythology to try and bring some good out of the death of Jesus. This is what we saw. We're, we're giving you these eyewitnesses accounts, and, and in fact, these eyewitness accounts. And in fact, in the last chapter of Corinthians, we're going to find out the Corinthians are taking up a... Uh, they're taking up an offering that they're going to send to Jerusalem, and Paul invites them to send some people along with that offering. And it's as if Paul is saying, hey, if if you want those guys to take that offering to Jerusalem, to talk to the eyewitnesses and, and check in with them about what they saw, you can do that. They saw this happen. He makes that fairly clear that when he says, that, yeah, they're still living. Exactly. Many of these people are still there. You can see them. You can meet them. You can ask them yourself. You don't even have to take my word for this testimony. Many others will testify to the same thing. Yeah, absolutely roots this story in the experience of the eyewitnesses who, who saw it and knew it. 
That's exactly right. In fact, I think Paul leaves us where we really only have a couple of choices here. Either you conclude the Christians were terribly mistaken, that they were either making up a story or outright lying, or you conclude that they saw what they said they saw. I don't see any other way to approach this based on the way Paul describes the eyewitnesses to this account. Of course, among the eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus is Paul himself, although the circumstances around his ability to say that are uh, somewhat dramatic, aren't they? Yes, they are. In fact, Paul alludes to that right here, and it agrees to some extent with what Luke had told us in Acts. Paul says he was the least of the apostles. He, He shows up late. He was not one of the original disciples. He was not in Jesus' group. In fact, as as he says right here, he went after the church as he knew it because he thought they were just dead wrong, that they were messing up the Jewish story. And he was trying to stamp it out by whatever means he could. And then, as Paul tells it, he himself came face to face with Jesus. He himself met Jesus, and it must have had a dramatic effect because it's it's as if he's saying, and I think you've observed this, John, it's as if he's saying, I'm the last person you should expect to be telling you this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the fact that Paul was an open and passionate enemy of the earliest church is something that speaks, I think, directly to his the credibility of his testimony. He, he even points out, we have... We have hundreds of of eyewitness testimonies to this, and that's at the very least, uh, hundreds that he mentions, including Paul's himself. But in Paul's case, he had, he he certainly had no motive or any any inclination at all to give oxygen to this movement around Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, he had pointed his entire life in the opposite direction. And the fact that what happened to him when he encountered Jesus in person was was so profound that it changed everything for him. He attributes that to the grace of God. He says, uh, by the grace of God, I am who I am. Uh, having called himself the least of the apostles, he goes on to say, I, I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I who was doing the work. It was the grace of God through me. Uh, I'm going to just note that because that emphasis on the work of God's grace in our lives is, is so important to Paul and things that Paul says later on. But we get to something there at the end where, of this passage where Paul says, whether it was I or they who gave you the message, so we proclaim and so you have come to believe. And I take that to mean it doesn't matter who told you this message. You should have gotten the same message. You should have gotten this one single message. And it's the foundation of where we stand and what we believe. So is Paul then reminding us perhaps in the church today that the heart of the gospel doesn't change from preacher to preacher, proclaimer to proclaimer, or believer to believer, ideally. I think that's exactly what Paul's saying. At least there is a core that remains unchanged in any attempt to change it, as as we'll see in just a moment, because Paul's, Paul's going to, or as we'll see as we go into the next 
portion of this chapter, Paul's going to address someone who's trying to make a fundamental change in this story. And Paul says we, we can have none of that. So when Paul was summarizing this message that he gave to the Corinthians, he said it's it's the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. Jesus was buried, then he was raised from the dead. What he hasn't cued us into yet, and is going to start in this next portion of the chapter that we'll take up in the next session, is Paul, Paul is going to address resurrection. Because I, I mentioned someone in the, in the Corinthian church seems to be trying to modify this fundamental message. Well, that modification was... They were asking questions about resurrection. Yes, from a purely human point of view, it seems pretty convenient to be able to to set aside this idea that's so thoroughly supernatural that requires uh, the 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 suspensions, as it were, of of our beliefs about the way that the natural world works, but. But the questions coming up in Corinth set up for us, I think, a detailed discussion for Paul to highlight why our faith rests on the reality of resurrection. The resurrection is as non-negotiable as the cross for Christians. And as he's just pointed out, it's supported by credible testimony. And, and all of this is crucial for for us to understand today, isn't it? I think so, yes. In fact, you know, earlier in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul had said that the gospel, the good news, this basic message, which he's now just laid out, is a stumbling block to his fellow Jews and his foolishness to the Greeks. And he had encountered some of that in Athens just before he came to Corinth. So he's talking to the learned people in Athens, and they initially expressed some interest in what he was saying. But as soon as he started talking about one specific individual raised from the dead, he's had a substantial group of people that simply started to make fun of him. And I think you're right to put your finger on uh, there's this supernatural component. Can't we just get rid of that? But you said something earlier. You said that Paul is trying to say this is his, this is a story of what God has done. Yes. And I think that's crucial. Christians, early Christians, Paul himself and others with him understood themselves to be telling a story of what God actually did in the world. And they were the eyewitnesses to this. So is it what God did or is it not? That's the question that we've got to resolve now. Well, as we get ready for our next episode, where we'll we'll go into the next major section of this chapter, verses 12 to 34, and, and Paul's going to open that section actually with a question, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And he's going to take that question head on, talk about the resurrection of Christ, and then begin to make connections between Christ's resurrection and our own hope for the future. That's where we pick up in the next session. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please visit our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening. Thank you.